session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Halakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at that of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Good to do the books today because I had a guest Monday night. Another thank you to Dr. Nazanin Mali, who is a sex therapist. It was a really great conversation and hope to have her back on the show again soon. So the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on uh, Monday's show next week is A Brief History of Equality by Thomas Piketty. This book, I'd ordered it about a month ago, and I think it was supposed to come in, in a couple of weeks, but it arrived yesterday, and so I decided to take that opportunity to read it as soon as I could. A couple of years ago, I read Thomas Piketty's book, Capital and Ideology, and so I wanted to read his latest one, again, A Brief History of Equality. All right, the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is The Shame Machine by Kathy O'Neill. The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Age of Humiliation? And so shame is a obviously powerful emotion, powerful topic, one that gets often a lot of attention. We also talk about vulnerability and how that's related to shame. But if we look at just shame as a feeling, like all of the emotions we can experience, it can have some value. So, of course, when we just hear shame, it's such a negative feeling, negative thing. We think of it only as bad, but it can have some value if it's done in a certain way. And I'll get into that, and probably in the next segment, I'll talk about that a bit more, about shame itself and some other concepts. But in this book, Kathy O'Neill explores how some industries, individuals, um, organizations might actually take advantage of shame. Sometimes it's not with the direct intention to begin with, but it's what has become the norm. And so she discusses and distinguishes between punching up with shame and punching down. So punching up is when we shame, let's say, politicians who are being corrupt or big companies who are hurting individuals by the ways that they are uh, doing their business and doing their practices. That's punching up, which can be helpful and effective. But unfortunately, what we do more of and is more frequently happening is punching down, punching down on people who are suffering in some way, going through something and blaming them for what they are going through. So this feeling of shame, it could feel like this sense that we're going to be ostracized from a group because we are violating the norms or the rules or what is the accepted behavior in some way. So there's this feeling of shame even when we tell someone you should feel ashamed it's in a way saying that you should feel bad about what you're doing which then actually would make it seem like you're still could be part of the group because you feel bad about it so as i was saying before shame is not all bad if you actually never feel any kind of shame it could mean you are like a someone who's a sociopath or a psychopath you don't care 
what you, what you're doing and how it affects others related to things like remorse and regret and also guilt so we have these ways of putting people in line or putting people in check that can actually be okay and good depending on how we do it so in the book she first explores a few areas where we can see this shame machine that she's talking about companies or industries that benefit off of shaming and the first one is actually about weight loss uh, she shares this story that's very heartbreaking but points to how powerful shame can be or those experiences of it that she had just passed her qualifying exams for her PhD which is a really big step and she was excited and she went to a local bodega or grocery store and wanted to buy some ingredients to make herself and make some chocolate chip cookies and the the clerk said something about why are you making cookies or something about her and because you're fat basically somehow telling her she shouldn't be doing that and she shares that experience of just going from this high of celebrating and being so excited to plunging deep into this abyss of shame and what she went through there and so she discusses how there is a huge industry of course multi-billion dollar industry about weight loss but a lot of it revolves around this theme that if you are overweight it's completely your fault it comes from laziness it comes from lack of willpower it comes from you not wanting it enough making bad choices that's the only reason why you are dealing with this weight issue when it's much more complicated than that so um, she was pointing to how losing weight when we look at the research is actually quite difficult and challenging to to lose weight and to keep it off there's been research, for example, on the show The Biggest Loser, where sometimes the contestants will lose, you know, 100 plus pounds. But if they look at them several years later, very often they've gained that weight back because it, it can be very difficult to keep the weight off because of how the body responds to weight loss and a host of other factors. So in the shame machine type of paradigm, we see that weight loss programs and treatments, they become these big businesses that basically make it seem that if you just make the right choices, you're going to lose the weight and be the healthy weight that you want to have. But it's much more complicated and they really create repeat customers. So people try to lose the weight, they maybe do, they maybe don't, or if they do, they gain it back and they come back. And the feeling is you're to blame. It was all your fault that, that you got there. And in my estimation, it doesn't mean you can't lose the weight it's not possible but that it's a lot harder than it could be made to seem and so that's the um, punching down that is there blaming the people who are going through some kind of challenge that it's from their weakness deficiency bad choices that they've gotten there and then there's these companies that profit from that uh, the next chapter she explores relates to addiction again a similar theme that we think or the tendency is to think of someone who has an addiction is weak, um, morally deficient, having no willpower, uh, being immoral, all these really bad things. And often we think I would never, that can never happen to me, which I think is really an unfortunate way. And I would always encourage against that. If you find yourself thinking, I would never do that. It's possible you wouldn't, but be much more open to the possibility that you definitely uh, can do almost anything that any other human has done if you were in certain circumstances. And if we look at addiction, definitely some people might have more of a predisposition towards addiction, but it's a human predisposition also. 
any of us can become addicted to something, whether it's a, a drug, some kind of substance, to food, to gambling, sex, shopping, spending money, a host of other things. Looking at your phone, you can become addicted to lots of things. And so if we tend uh, to go to that place of, well, it can't be me, what's wrong with these people, that opens up this type of shaming that if someone has an addiction, they are weak. It's their fault. They got themselves there. And not only that in society, especially somewhere like America, we shame them to the point that people are in jail for that. Many people in jail right now are there because of drug issues that they had. So they had a drug problem, which is much more of a medical, psychological issue, but they are treated as criminals and spend time behind bars. They need treatment, not jail. And so we, we see that the tendency to have that viewpoint that they are to blame allows for this shame machine to continue, that we can blame the people who have addiction, that it's their fault. And that's all we have to do is we're absolved from having to help them either, because if they just made good choices, they'd be okay. And similar to the weight loss phenomenon where we will see, well, look at this person, they're a success story, so you can do it. We see the same thing with addiction, people who have overcome addiction, and then they become famous for it or they become well-known. And it does happen, but just because something can happen doesn't mean it's easy or if anyone doesn't do it, it's from their own weakness. Same thing happens, for example, with racism or sexism where people will find, oh, well, look, this person is successful and they're black or this woman made it in this field, so you can do it. Can does not mean there's equal opportunity. And also when we're talking about can when it comes to things like weight loss addiction doesn't mean that just because it's possible, it's easier that we should blame those who are still struggling with whatever that issue is. And then she goes on to talk about poverty and how poverty is another one of those uh, types of concepts that we look at as if you're poor, it's your fault. You've made bad decisions, you're weaker, something is wrong with you if you're poor. And again, we can have those rags to riches stories that make us feel like, well, look, this person was poor became wealthy. So it's possible. Again, it is possible, but doesn't mean that things are fair or that if you are poor or remain poor, it is because of your own weakness, lack of uh, hard work, dedication, whatever it might be. And really what we need to do is help people who are poor rather than think that they have to figure it out themselves. But when we come from a place of shaming of thinking, well, somehow you got yourself there, it was your bad choices, you need to get yourself out, it absolves us again of having to help to make systematic changes to make things better. So uh, I really found those points valuable in the book of looking at these different big uh, issues like um, addiction, weight, gain and loss, and poverty, and how it can be very easy to blame those who are suffering and think that they are the problem rather than recognizing uh, it's a much bigger issue than that. These are challenging types of concepts or struggles that people need help with and assistance not to be blamed or shamed. And she also explores how the internet and social media is contributing to these types of shame machines or is uh, intensifying and magnifying how it happens. Someone can get shamed just for, you know, they someone gets a video of them doing something embarrassing. She talks about one story of someone falling over in their motorized walker or something like that they fall over and people thought it was funny and were sharing it and humiliating and shaming this person who was just 
having a bad moment or just going through something in life. And that's really unfortunate, and we have to ask ourselves about that. The internet can create this sense of anonymity, that we're ourselves anonymous, but also the victim is anonymous. Oh, there's some random woman, some random man somewhere, and we're posting a video or picture or resharing, retweeting it. It's not a big deal. But hopefully we can remind ourselves that's an actual person, someone that could be us going through that, try to have that empathy to imagine what it's like to be them, to be shamed for something. They're a low moment, embarrassing moment, something that doesn't look good, and we're, we're putting them on blast, putting them uh, on display to be made fun of. So she, she did talk about how when we're talking about shaming people also for things like, let's say, making a sexist or a racist comment, asking ourselves, well, what's my intention here? Is it to virtue signal to show that I'm good and look, I'm not racist or sexist because I think what this person is saying is bad? Does that really have a, a positive effect? Because we can think of shame, as I was saying before, as something that might help someone change their behavior in a certain way if it's done particularly in a certain way. But usually that's not what people are doing online. It's just, let me show you how good I am by showing you how bad I think this person is. So I'm going to share and retweet something. So this is where we get back to the punching up that she talks about, that shame can be good in these ways. When we, for example, she discusses the, the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma, who were huge, huge um, contributors to the opioid crisis in the United, United States, and so how they have been shamed. But this punching up shame is important because they're doing something really wrong and they need to be held accountable. Or corrupt politicians or the Me Too movement. These types of things are actually aspects where shame can be good if we are punching up at those who are in power and holding them accountable for what they are doing. Um, or the uh, police, I think it's called... SARS police, not like the virus, but SARS in Nigeria and how they were very corrupt and there was an uprising and people were shaming them for how they were treating the citizens and eventually it's led to some changes. So shame is not all bad. It usually is bad and the ways we use it is bad, but we have to be mindful of am I punching down or punching up? And as always, what's my intention? Am I just trying to shame someone so I look good? Or is it genuinely to try to change behavior or society in some way? And that's the question we always have to ask ourselves. So this is a really interesting exploration of this concept of shame in society and especially looking at some of the new ways that it's being expressed and experienced because of things like internet and social media and how they can accelerate how, how things happen. Um, so I really enjoyed the book and I'd recommend you to check it out. Again, that was The Shame Machine by Kathy O'Neill. Let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Dr. Holakwi. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, I have a problem that I am trying to see if uh, I am making a right decision or not. Um, I uh, I am in my mid forties, and uh, my husband is uh, retiring soon, and um, been married for seventeen years, and um, uh, we things are not going well for the past few years, and um, 
every time I think about to getting a divorce, there's this some fear and, and anxiety that I get, and uh, it stops me from what I really wish to go ahead and get a divorce. Um, um, I always think that what if um, I get divorced, my life would get worse, and uh, if I have a little um, things that I have now, I may lose them, and um, uh, basically I feel like I will be more miserable than the life I have currently with my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, because of that, I am overthinking. I, I lost my sleep at night. Um, and in the morning, I'm very, uh, very, like, depressed, and uh, it's like I have no, not much hope left. Hmm. Okay. So I'm trying to see what can, how can I help myself uh, to get myself ready or prepared, or if this is a right decision to do it at this moment with all the things are going on and. Uh, you know, with um, everything that is turning expensive, and uh, if uh, he's a provider for the house, um, what if I would have, I mean, have a tough life after mm-hmm. getting divorced? Yeah, well, these kinds of decisions are never easy because the changes are so foundational to your life, and it does bring up anxieties, which the hard part is that you would be anxious no matter what, whether it's the right or wrong decision. So the anxiety doesn't tell us too much. Uh, unfortunately, we can look at it a bit, but we're going to expect you to be anxious even if it's right. And it seems like a lot of your anxiety is less about is the marriage good, but is that what can I handle what's on the other side or will it be worse on the other side? And the comfort of staying in, in the way that things are is keeping you in place, but you're saying you're not happy and then you're still contemplating and going back and forth uh, about the decision and the truth of the matter is there's never a good time yes we can say you know inflation and things are happening that makes you say financially it's not as good of a time but there's always going to be something um, happening so I'm not suggesting you should get the divorce because I don't know enough yet to make that kind of a determination but in hearing your thought process that's something that I noticed people say it in in all circumstances just even a breakup before marriage well you know their birthday is coming up or this is happening it always will feel like the wrong time because it's a hard thing to do but there will rarely be a time that it's going to feel good or easy it's going to be hard no matter what because you do have to accept that if you make a change like that some things will be sacrificed it's impossible for you know just something you don't like to be gone and everything you like to be exactly the same usually there's some kind of trade-off. If it wasn't that way, you the decision would be easy for you. So obviously it's going to be difficult. Tell me a bit about the marriage when you say for a few years. And also, before we go there, are there children in this marriage? Yes, we do have one. Okay. Okay. Uh, and younger child. Yes. Okay. Um, so tell me a bit about what's happening in this marriage when you say it's not, hasn't been good. What's going on? Um, uh, I don't, uh, we don't have any, um, any intimacy uh, for the past two years. And, um, there is no, like, when we are in one house, basically one is upstairs, one is downstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, no communication, um, uh, at all. And, uh, just, 
uh, we are living just to raise the ki- our kids. And uh, mm, I was told once that uh, instead of getting divorced, let's have an open marriage, which I'm very against that. And um, and I felt like um, he do whatever he likes to make him happy in life. And I'm the one that I'm just taking everything in my, inside of me. And um, I'm just, I'm not feeling good about myself. I hate myself so much now, and um, but I just keep going because I know I do have responsibility about my child and um, try um, just to continue, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the open marriage, that was his suggestion or that was from someone outside me? His suggestion. Okay. Um, and you're saying you're not open to that open marriage, which many people are not and you, you shouldn't do something you don't feel comfortable with I feel against that and yeah. I uh, when I asked for uh, just getting legally separated and divorced he said once you file it I'm going to go retire so you don't get any retirement or anything any money and you left out with nothing okay so he's so, kind of using a threat to keep you in the marriage in a yes. way okay um, n- now that obviously that, that shows that things are in a bad place uh, going back a bit, how did you get here? Because you're saying now it's like you're two separate, living two separate lives just in the same home. How did things get to this point for these last few years? I I think it's the financial pressure. Um, uh, but um, he is private practice and um, he makes a good money. Um, over half a million and but I've been pressured lately to get a job. And then at the same time, I get this blame that, oh, you're too old to even get a standard job. So... Um, he tells you that, or where do you hear that? He tells me that. Mm-hmm. So um, forcing to get a job, at the same time, he tells me that I'm too old to get an even standard job. What does that I mean? Um, what does that even mean? A standard job, and why would you be too old? You're in your forties. He would say not even like any local places you can get a job because you're too old. Okay. Um, well, I don't. I'm not sure. Would you believe that? Um, you know, mentality. I'm so exhausted. I, I mean, this is one of million things I hear from him. So I. I just don't know. I I I am um, I really want to get divorced and mm-hmm. separated, but I feel like because of the um, social status he has and uh, everything, I will be the loser at the end. What does lo- um, what does loser mean? It means that I will not get um, what I have to get uh, legally and. Um, because he knows the system and he knows mm-hmm. how to manipulate the system or judge or um, anyone. Um, I think he will use that against me and uh, I will, not, like um, when he pays tax um, lately, he doesn't, he has his accountant who's his best friend and he doesn't report how much he makes. And um, he told me that he can manipulate the system I don't get any spousal or child support. So, so many things. I'm, 
it's like I have so much inside of me. I can't. I mean, I just want to know how. I'm just afraid of everything, Doc. Yeah. Well, just, and he's he's using that against you, and basically yes. telling your him telling you that you're too weak to live without him. Um, exactly. Which possibly was part of the relationship to begin with. That you know he wouldn't tell it to you in this way, but you felt that way about yourself also, or I don't know if you didn't right. feel that, and he's made you feel that over the years by giving you these, um, you know, this these comments about you know you can't because it doesn't even make sense to me. You can't get a job in your forties. I don't know what that even means. Um, of course you can, uh, but he's trying to say I have um, I have zero skills. But I have grad. I'm graduate uh, from college, and okay. um, I do have degree. But I did not work because uh, of his job. I have to be, be home for my child, and you know, to take care of school, after school, and all the work. Uh, well, but well, possibly it, it was not. Yeah, but the sense I'm getting is, you know, in a, obviously this is true of everyone that we're not seeing our own potential or our own strength. But it seems very strong that you don't you, you see yourself as not capable or feel weak about yourself that I can't make it on my own uh, and over the years you've not uh, allowed yourself to show yourself what you're capable of so at some level you believe him but he, he's just trying to make you feel weak obviously this can't be a marriage that it's almost like a hostage situation like you can't live without me so you have to stay with me and in more traditional marriages and previous generations there was some a lot of it was more of a contract so there was a lot of this but it, it doesn't seem like that's the situation you actually are in that you wouldn't be able to survive without him you're just not sure you can so what's stopping you from getting a job let's say now anyway for you know let's like not nothing nothing is stopping okay me. but something really stops you to... what yeah, is stopping but, you um, i hear well, I hear from different uh, people that, okay, if you file a divorce, if you get a job now, they will not pay you enough. Alimony is you whether not to get any job and first, you know, get your divorce done, then eventually you have to go back to work. So um, different thought, different things. It's like I'm, <laughs> I'm lost. Yeah, and and this relates to this feeling of uh, powerlessness is also that I don't know how to make the right decision. So you're doubting yourself exactly. in making a decision too. So I can't exactly. You said that you said it. I can't make any decision. But you I you have. can. I mean, I know you're you're saying you haven't, and it's been hard for you. But I want you to realize you can, and you can live with the consequences, whatever they are. And there's no easy answer to what you're going through that someone else has. So you're going to have to make a decision and then trust that you'll you'll find your way. And I can assure you, based on what I'm hearing from you so far, you're stronger than you realize and you're more capable than you realize to do more than you're, you're doing and to take care of yourself. doesn't mean it's easy or doesn't mean um, it, it won't be challenges and you won't feel these doubts again and again. But I want you to recognize that you're believing this in this narrative he keeps feeding you makes you you feel like maybe he's right. You know, he's saying he tells me this, he tells me that. He's just trying to make you feel like you're too weak to leave, which is part of um, type um, even an emotionally abusive relationship has this element that 
you know, you, you can't be without me, so you have to stay in this. And then even, okay, we'll have an open marriage, um, so that way he'll still, I guess, get what he's wanting in some way. But doctor, what is open marriage? I don't understand the concept of it. I'm, I know, but uh, when someone tell you this, uh, what is exactly mean? Well, what it exactly means is not cl- necessarily clear. That's why, you know, people, it's like making a contract. So people will have, you know, they people have an open marriage that we can date other people as long as we tell each other, or we won't tell each other, or we can have only sex with other people. You know, you can have lots of different ways of having it, so it's not an exactly something. I don't get the sense at all to what you want, even 1%, that you're really just so afraid to leave that you're trying to find a way to stay that might work or can be okay. I, I get that. That's what my, uh, just from the way you said, what is, a, you know. That's the main reason. I uh, just keep hoping, oh, it will change. Hopefully it'll get better. better. But What's gonna, not only get, getting yeah. any better, it's, it's getting worse. <laughs> it's getting a lot worse. And um, is I'm trying to see if there is anything that can help me. Um, uh, any self-therapy, any books that can help me just to clean my mind and make better decisions. Because like this, I'm going back and forth. And it's hard. I can't yeah. make a decision. And well, I mean, I, I don't know. There's no, I mean, there's no like easy, like, okay, if you do this, you're going to trust yourself. You know, it, you're going to have to work on that over a long period of time. But you, you're not going to get there and then make this type of a decision. You know, you're going to have to make it while it still doesn't feel that good is probably the only way it's going to work. But, I mean, going back to that open marriage, do you have any interest in that, of having an open marriage? I don't. Okay. I, I always promise myself if this is over, I would never, ever want to see anyone. And I just want to um, take care of myself and my my kids. When you say never, ever, you mean you wouldn't want to be date anyone else if you got divorced? Uh, yeah. Well, I hate all men now. I, okay. I, I just, I just, even the name is really, it makes me feel like nauseous. I just, I just hate, I just hate all men. Well, you don't have to make a decision to be with, I mean, you're still in this marriage, but the feeling you're having is something worth looking at because there's been so much anger that's led to this hatred, which is because you've been hurt by him and, and maybe there's past men too that it's understandable you come to that conclusion, but it's not all men are going to be this way, but this man that you're around, and he's making you feel like you can't have anyone else or be with anyone else or, you know, do anything on your own. So you're going to internalize that. Um, I don't, you don't need to go there yet of would you ever be with someone else yet? You need to look at what's the right thing to do now. Um, We touched a bit about the marriage, but not too much. I would want to understand even what initially drew you to him we're actually at a commercial break so i'm going to put you on hold after the break i want to hear from you about how you met what attracted you to him because i'm sure there was things there from the beginning that now you can see um, but also it might help us understand you and why you were drawn to someone like him okay so we'll put you on hold and we'll talk after the break sure. all right we'll be right back welcome back Unfortunately, we lost the caller during the commercial break. Um, I don't know if they got disconnected or we're not sure they wanted to continue. And so they are not here, so I can't uh, speak with them. And I want to be careful in talking about their case because they can't respond. But just wanted to share some thoughts in case they are listening to um, 
talk with them about some thoughts and, and what came up in our conversation. So to begin with, whenever we are faced with a decision like that, we are obviously going to be nervous and anxious about it. So as I told her, unfortunately, the anxiety doesn't tell us too much. It tells us a little bit, but it could tell us just we're afraid of a change, not that it's the wrong change to make. So people, let's say they want to take a new job. Almost no matter what, you're going to feel anxious about it, even if it is your dream job or a job you're waiting for. And so we can interpret that anxiety as of, oh, this is the wrong thing to do, or I shouldn't be doing this. But oftentimes it's actually more because we're just anxious about a change because that's how we can be. Uh, last week I was talking about getting feedback and who we get feedback from and how we pay attention to that. And when we're looking at someone in the case that she was in, that you have someone telling you you can't do this or you can't do that, but they have a strong agenda of their own and intentions, we have to be aware that that feedback is essentially not worth very much or essentially meaningless. What should we make of someone who's very convinced or very committed to something happening a certain way? Someone wants you to go somewhere, of course, they're going to say that place is good. Oh, that place is great. This is, you're going to have a great time there. If you know they want to go there and they want you to be there because they want to go, you have to be aware that their feedback is not worth very much. And we kind of know this in general, that we are aware of when someone's telling us something, do they have their own intentions or agenda involved and to discount that. Unfortunately, what happens in these types of situations is someone can be putting us down and because we might feel some of those things or worry about those things ourselves, it can latch on to us. So the way I think about these things, when someone says something negative, it's like they're sending a hook and we have to have a space for that hook to latch on to. There has to be an opening in us for that insult, for that negative type of feedback to come in. To, to, to hit us in a way that lands. So someone could yell five things at you, five insults at you, and if only one of them sticks to you, it's probably because you somewhere within yourself have that feeling about yourself. You have this own uh, insecurity there that they're hitting. And so it seemed in, in her case, there was this sense possibly of not knowing her own strength, her ability, value, and I would hope that if she does explore that in therapy, explore that in some way, she will look at, well, where is that coming from? As uh, paradoxical as it might seem, thinking of ourselves as not very strong can have some benefits. It can let us off the hook. It can make us not responsible for certain things. Also, we might have learned that other people want us to be that way, so we internalize that and think it's true. And so we feel like we can't do something, but very often it is that we can, but we learn that it's better that we don't do it. So we tell ourselves we can't. And we all do these in a variety of ways, trying something different, a new creative risk, a new professional risk, a new relational risk. It's easier to tell ourselves I can't, it's not possible, than to actually recognize it is possible. So it did seem like with her experience, she learned to internalize the sense that I can't, but and I even stopped her once there and saying she can make a decision, for example, it's just hard for her or scary for her, easier to tell herself that she can't. Now, going back to making a decision like that uh, about divorce or separation, it's always going to be scary. This is why it's such a hard decision. It's such a big life change, especially for her, of course, feeling that she can't make it on her own, 
threats from her husband about what would happen in divorce proceedings and afterwards. Um, you know, these types of messages like you can't even get a uh, standard job or normal job because of your age. These are all comments made by someone to try to belittle someone, which is really sad, but we do see this in relationships. If I make you feel weak enough, you'll feel like you can't be without me or that you need me. And so that's not a genuine relationship where two people come together or stay together out of wanting to be together, enjoying the relationship, the partner making us feel good. There's a feeling of, as I said, kind of like a hostage situation, a Stockholm syndrome might sink in of this sense that I need this other person or I want to be with them or feel good about them because they're keeping me alive or keeping me okay when that's not the case. So anytime a relationship goes into this realm that someone is telling the other person they're too weak to make it without them, they can't make it without them, we can be very certain this is not a love or loving relationship, that that's gone out the window. Maybe it was never there, or if it was, it's not there anymore. And I don't know the extent in their relationship, but when we look at relationships that go into domestic violence and extreme controlling relationships, this is what we very often see, that the person is making the partner feel weak, even taking away resources, uh, financial, but also support resources, so the individual has a harder time being close to people around them. Um, and as a result, they feel that they are lacking in any way of taking care of themselves, so they need the other person. And so when we look at someone's relationship from the outside, it can be very easy to think, well, can't they see what's going on? But we have to be aware that usually these things happen over time, and it's a combination of things, the person's own feelings about themselves and about life and about relationships and the other person playing into that and slowly they get to this place where they feel that they, they have no choice but to stay. So I do hope that she believes in herself more and recognizes she can make a decision for herself, whatever that right decision is. Um, we didn't get to talk about the marriage and how it got to this point, but as I was mentioning before we went to the break that there's likely things she can see and how this pattern of relationships uh, of relationship that was created was not just something that happened out of thin air and it's not about blaming her for it but for her to look at is there some way that i was drawn to this type of a dynamic so it does seem like there could have been a sense that she needed someone that the need was more there than than what she could be doing on her own so i hope she also looks at that and then coming back to this notion of what a relationship should have and shouldn't have, if you're in a relationship and the person makes you feel bad about who you are, this is not a relationship. This is not love. Love can never include someone making you feel bad about yourself. You want to actually be with someone who definitely makes you feel even better about yourself, sees you in a more favorable light than you see yourself, looks at you and sees the potential you don't see the goodness that you might have a hard time recognizing or need encouragement or reminders about that that's what love is supposed to be not someone who's making you doubt yourself more and make you feel weak this is not someone trying to help you someone trying to help you is not going to put you down and shame you uh, the topic of the book was about shame they're not going to make you feel ashamed for being who you are they're going to make you feel good a relationship also has to include some basic level of trust and some level of communication, some level of being able to share things with one another. If those things are not there, really, we don't have a relationship anymore. We're just 
two people who are together, maybe in the same space, but not together in an emotional sense of being with one another. But I do want to end this segment talking a few minutes about making these types of decisions because working with clients in therapy, very often we see them at crossroads or they might not want to even acknowledge there is a decision to be made because we're always going to be afraid of change. You can even say this is my dream has been to do this, but when the door opens, we'll be a little bit hesitant to walk through that door very often because it brings a lot of things with it. Change is always going to be scary. Whatever that is, can I keep that thing? Do I deserve that thing? Will people be okay with me having whatever that is? Um, will I want it? What if I don't like it? What if it's the wrong decision and I blame myself for doing it? For so many reasons, we notice that when we have to make a big decision, the anxiety is always going to be there. And we have to be mindful of the anxiety, pay attention to it, but also make sure we don't let it define what we do next because you're going to feel that anxiety no matter what when you come to make a decision like that it's impossible not to feel anxiety if it's a big decision you should be feeling anxiety you should feel like is this the right thing what's going to happen next if you don't it probably is not that big of a decision it's probably not that difficult of a thing to deal with so uh, you know, when I talk on my show about being in touch with our feelings, at times people can take that too far to think, well, if I'm feeling anxious, that's telling me I shouldn't do it because I'm listening to my feelings. But we have to be aware that our feelings are a source of information, something to understand. So in the case of our caller, we can be pretty sure that no matter what, she's going to feel anxious, even if it was 100% the right decision. I don't know that it is. We didn't get to talk long enough to get there. But we can be fairly certain that it's going to be there no matter what. So when you see in yourself these decisions coming up, breaking up with someone, or even asking someone out, or changing a job, changing careers, be prepared that the anxiety needs to be there if it's a big enough decision. It's not telling us it's the wrong decision, it's just telling us it's a big decision. And so we should understand that that's always going to be part of that process. And when it comes to relationships, ending relationships, it's a very painful thing to do. Um, and I've worked with so many clients that are in a place where they're realizing the relationship is over, but ending it is so difficult. Even if they're pretty sure, they might have some uncertainty, but even if they're sure, it can be hard to execute that decision. And so there is this mindset of, well, it's just not the right timing. It doesn't feel like the right timing very often just because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't mean that the timing is wrong. It just means that it's always going to feel wrong when the time comes to do it. I'll, I'll joke with clients saying there's no national breakup day where this is the right time to do a breakup. It's always going to be a difficult thing. And so we have to be aware that we're not going to feel good. They're not going to feel good. But if it's the right thing to do, we have to go ahead and do that. Um, on the other end, of a spectrum of looking at why people don't break up compared to what we were talking about earlier with the caller. Sometimes people don't break up out of guilt for the other person. They're going to be devastated. They're going to be so sad, or I'm going to make them feel bad. And at one level, it's good that some of those feelings come up. It shows you have empathy of care for the other person, especially it's your romantic partner. We would hope that'd be very strong, but we can't let that be the reason we don't end a relationship. Often when this comes up for a client, I'll mention, well, imagine if it was the other way around. Would you want them to stay with you or someone to stay with you out of pity 
or feeling sorry for you or feeling bad for you? And inevitably the answer is no, of course not. I don't want someone to stay with me out of pity or because they feel bad. I would want to be with someone who wants to be with me. And so we can also recognize that by breaking up with someone, when we're no longer wanting the relationship, we're giving them the opportunity to be with someone that fully wants to be with them. And they deserve that. And don't think you're so special that they would want to be with you 50% rather than be with someone else 100%. Or that you're the only one that can make them happy or make them feel okay. When we're going through a breakup, the person feels that way because we have that attachment bond and it feels like I can't survive without you. And people might go to that place, but they can. They'll make it through the breakup, as we all do, as we inevitably go through in life. And they'll come out the other side. Doesn't mean they won't be sad for a while or mad at you for a while. But that's part of the process. And actually, that mad at you, that's something you have to accept. Some people, because of their upbringing and things they've gone through, don't think anyone should ever be mad at them. They should never upset anyone or hurt anyone. But there's no way to live life with that mindset and that type of principle. You have to make the right decisions, which means that sometimes people won't like them or will hurt them, but you have to make the right and genuine decision. Someone likes you, you don't like them, you have to tell them. You no longer want to be in a relationship. You understand it will hurt them, but the right thing to do is to end the relationship, not stay with someone out of guilt. That doesn't make you a good person. As I've said before, sometimes doing the nice thing in a situation is the meanest thing you can do to someone. Staying with someone you no longer want to be with is not nice or kind or a good thing. It's actually quite mean when you think about what you're depriving them of and what you're putting them through. So there is no National Breakup Day. If you ever want to go ahead and end a relationship, just know it's going to be hard. But if it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do, even if it feels bad when you're doing it. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back, studio number 3104410555. So the book today was about shame, The Shame Machine by Kathy O'Neill. And as I had mentioned then, I wanted to talk about shame at least for one segment because it's something that even before I saw this book and read the book um, has been on my mind a lot lately. When I look at a lot of different aspects of life, even different things that in other books I'm reading about to try this or try that, that I recognize that if we don't have a sense of self that doesn't veer towards shame or have a strong uh, proneness or you know being prone to shame, it can be very hard to do these things, to look at ourselves, to evaluate ourselves, to have that mindfulness with the non-judgmental awareness. It can be very hard if we're very easily going towards shame. So for example, I read the book, um, regrets the power of regret by daniel pink and so i was thinking about if you are a very shameful person it could be very difficult for you to look at your life and try to see what you might regret or to learn from it to grow from it because you go to this really dark place about that Um, or if you're meditating for example you might feel that way you look at yourself a certain way and you might judge your thoughts or your feelings so it's very easy to say just do this and it's very simple to to try that but if you feel very shameful you can have a hard time with that so shame as i mentioned can happen to anyone and that's okay but the toxic shame is what we're worried about and the antidote to that toxic type of a shame is self-esteem or a sense of self-worth 
Now, these are very generic terms that you can just throw out there and make it seem like, well, if you have self-esteem, you're okay. But it can be important to look at what do we mean and also what we don't mean. Because I often see when people talk about self-esteem in a negative way, um, for example, as a backlash to the movements in the 1990s and going forward to teach kids self-esteem, often it's because the ways that self-esteem is talked about to me is missing something. So it's often presented in this sense that self-esteem means you're so good and amazing and even better than other people and almost like whatever you do is good and okay in a very empty type of way. So whatever you did is amazing. Whatever you did is good. You're the best. You're awesome. And what I think becomes problematic is because those things sound positive, which they are and they do sound positive, it makes it seem like, well, how can that be bad to tell someone they're amazing or they're the best? But what it creates is this sense that of entitlement that I am better than other people. And what we want to actually teach kids and, and instill in ourselves is a sense that I am worthy of love and respect by being human, but, but also like everyone else. So it's not that I'm better than other people that you should like me. It's because I'm just human and like everyone else, I deserve that. So there's a sense of self-worth and value that doesn't place me above anyone else, but also definitely doesn't place me below anyone else. So I think that's unfortunately what was missed in some of those types of self-esteem promotions that people were trying to do is, well, just tell kids they're amazing and the best, which is a weird thing to say. How can you tell everyone they're the best? Something's missing there. Tell everyone they're better than everyone else. That that can't work. But that's what many people have internalized, that self-esteem means you're never wrong, you're never bad, you're always perfectly good. So it's not that you're never wrong. You can be wrong. But you are, in a way, never bad in the sense that you're never unlovable. So that's what, to me, we're looking at. When we're looking at self-esteem is this sense of lovability or uh, you know, classic book, I'm okay, you're okay. This feeling of being okay. So it doesn't mean you have to be amazing. We're not even talking about certain skills or talents or abilities, but just you're okay. You're here. You're lovable. No one can disrespect you. No one could take away that self-worth that you have or that worth as a human being or dehumanize you. You exist here and are part of this, part of us. And so it's this feeling of, how easy is it for me to no longer be part of us? That is scary. So as a parent, what do you do when it comes to your kids? So obviously there's one extreme where people are putting their kids down and hurting their kids in a variety of ways. And as what we do often, we think, well, the opposite is good. And that's where we go to these places of never let your kid be sad, never tell them they're wrong, never set any boundaries or consequences, which is also not healthy. What you want to make sure your kid feels and internalizes is this sense that they are lovable for being who they are. They don't have to earn that. And so when you respond to them in ways that can make them feel ashamed for who they are, for making a mistake, for doing something, or, and we see this a lot in many cultures, but definitely in the Persian culture, the sense that you better not do something that other people don't like. What if you do something that people think is bad? What if you do something that isn't good? So, of course, we have to care about what people think. But parents play a huge role in teaching their kids how important it is. Because essentially what you teach your child is that if other people don't like what you did, you did something wrong. You are bad. Rather than, yeah, sometimes people won't like what you do, but you're still okay. Or if someone makes fun of you, you, you know, even sometimes we'll tell kids or people will tell them, well, if you do this, they might make fun of you. 
And what we should be telling our kids is, no matter what's going on with you, no one has the right to make fun of you and put you down. Just like you shouldn't do that to anyone else, no one has the right. So it's not that, well, if you dressed this way or you looked this way, the kids should make fun of you. Or if they did, that's your fault. The truth is that you never deserve that. But unfortunately, in trying to protect our kids, we often give them the other message. We say, okay, don't do something that will make people make fun of you because that's such a painful thing. I don't want you to go through that. Yes, it's understandable. We want to protect our kids from being made fun of or teased or being bullied in some way. Of course, that makes sense. But we have to be so careful because the message we tend to send them when we come from that place is that someone might rightfully make fun of you. Someone might be doing a good thing and making fun of you and you are the problem. So that's why sometimes kids won't even tell tell their parents or tell anyone that they're being teased or bullied because they think it's their fault. They blame themselves. If people are making fun of me, something's wrong about me. I'm defective in some way. I am not okay in some way. And so we go to that shameful place that means that I'm not okay. I'm not good. I'm not lovable. And so we have to make our kids recognize that that's there. You're always going to be lovable. We can do these things. We can try this. It's good to do good things. But there's something that's not movable, which is that sense of you being valued, you being worthy of love, you never being worthy of disrespect. That's never okay. doesn't matter what you do, who it's the person doing it, that's never okay. And so that's something that we have to make sure we teach our kids. Because as I was saying, when we look at ourselves and our lives, if we feel that we are on the, you know, razor's edge of being part of the group or not, or we can lose it at any moment, it's very scary for us to try to look at our own life or to make changes or to do certain things. If we tell someone to evaluate their own actions with non-judgmental awareness, it sounds good on the surface and I very much feel that that's true. However, if you feel very shameful about yourself, it's going to be hard for you to hold on to that. You will quickly go to a place of putting yourself down or of judging yourself and shaming yourself. And so people often deny their mistakes because they're afraid that if they face them, they have to punish themselves. They have to focus on possibly being unlovable or not being part of the group anymore. And so this is why it is so, so powerful. So as a parent, you want to make sure you are not making your child feel that their lovability is something that can be lost. It is not something that can be taken from them. It is not something that they have to fight for, work for, or to earn. It's not something that if they don't do this, it might be gone. They are lovable for being them. And this is why I encourage parents, don't think you have to make your kids become a certain way. I do think it's important to have values. I do think it's important to be aware of what's happening in their lives and to guide them towards positive ways of doing things for themselves and for the people around them. But to think they have to act in particular ways that are the quote unquote right ways, where they have to um, show up a certain way that makes us look good or make makes people proud of them in a certain way. Yes, we want them to do good things, but they should recognize that whoever they are is okay. And this goes to how they express themselves, how they want to act, their interests, the things they enjoy. Give them that space to be who they are, to be themselves. 
Unfortunately, parents think, well, I can't let my kids do this because that's bad. And so we make our child feel bad for being themselves. And this is where shame is the strongest. I am bad because I am me. I am bad because of this aspect of myself. That's something deeper than I did some action and it might not have been good. It could have been better. Or I made a mistake and that's not good and let me make it better. It's this feeling that something deeper within me. And so this is why when I work with clients and self-esteem is an issue that we can see affecting various aspects of their lives, they start to feel this core sense that they're unlovable. So they might try something good and feel good about it, but they can't shake this feeling that something about them makes them unlovable or makes them not okay. They're trying to protect themselves. They're afraid they're going to get ostracized or kicked out of the group in some way. But because of that, they already do it to themselves. They put themselves down or they remove themselves from certain aspects of society. I know I'm bad and I don't, people don't want me. So let me not even join people or not, let me not have relationships because no one can love who I am. So love your child as a lovable human being just for being born. Don't be worried about they have to do certain things or they have to become someone. And we as adults have to recognize this too. It's so difficult to change this feeling. That's why I urge parents to be this way with their children to make them feel lovable because when we don't have that as an adult, it's, we can logically get it. I talk to my clients and they can say, I understand that I should be lovable just as I would see other people. Or I invite them to imagine themselves as a baby or imagine a baby. And never does someone think of a baby and say, well, we'll see if this baby deserves love. We'll see if this baby is worthy of love. We just all know that inherently that baby deserves love and to be taken care of and to be treated well. And we have to remember that we ourselves were once that baby, that small baby and then child who was worthy of love just for being us. But we can have a hard time shaking that feeling that something is just wrong with me. And it can be heartbreaking to see people fight with that problem, fight with that issue that maybe I'm not lovable in some way. So if you're listening, love yourself. I know that's much harder, uh, easier said than done and harder to do, but realize that you have that right. You have that, um, you deserve that to love yourself and for others to love you. If someone disrespects you, it's never okay. No one deserves to be disrespected. And of course we have to remember that and how we deal with others. No one deserves to receive our disrespect. You never have the right to put someone down in a way to make them feel bad for who they are, whatever the situation might be. So when we think about shaming, we want to make sure we're not the ones who are also shaming others. Yes, we don't deserve shame ourselves, but no one deserves to get that shame from us to put them down as an individual. As Kathy O'Neill talked about in the book, we can look at shame as far as shaming organizations or people in power to doing the right things because they're in the public eye. But to go to an individual and put them down, we have to be very careful about that. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Student number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the preservation of any relationship, one important element is an apology. Acknowledging some wrongdoing and apologizing for it in a appropriate way or the best way possible to maintain the relationship. It, it really is something that I consider um, 
really foundational in making a relationship work in that we acknowledge the things that we do and we respond to them. When people hear apologies, they sometimes think, it, it maybe even relates to this that sense of shame that we're saying you are bad or you did something so bad. People can be very defensive about apologizing or recognizing a wrongdoing because it could seem like such a big deal. So they say, oh, what's the big deal that this happened? And so when we apologize about something, obviously if it's a big deal, we, we should do it, but you're also acknowledging smaller things that you've done that might upset or make the person that you're with not feel very good. If you care about them, we shouldn't want them to be hurt by what we're doing or for things that we do to hurt them. So uh, to begin with, people can not like to bring up something that might be from the past. And so we can say, well, that happened in the past. I want to focus on the present and the future. People will go to these places. But if we look at any relationship, it's like a human body. If there's something that's still ailing something that's broken for example a broken bone we can't say well it broke in the past so i want to just keep running now well if we don't deal with that broken bone you won't be able to actually run the way you can or even walk the way that you can and to be as strong as you can so just because something happened in the past doesn't mean it's been resolved and it doesn't mean there aren't feelings in the present about what happened in the past so i'm sure any of us can think of something that someone has done to us or something that happened to us in the past and it will bring up a bunch of feelings for us so the event is in the past yes anything that's not happening now was in the past so if that's our framework then we can never talk about anything other than the present and the future well, that doesn't make sense we have to resolve things that have happened in the past in our own past and also the past in our relationships that we are we have to be mindful of so we have to think of this as if i want to preserve my relationship or to keep it healthy and strong, we have to be aware of the things that have potentially hurt our partner, or maybe have made them upset. Take that mindset that if I care about my partner, I don't want to have hurt them. Now, when we look at how people tend to apologize, if they even go into that type of a conversation, a very important distinction for me is when you're apologizing to someone to ask yourself, is it for me or for them? Now, of course, ultimately it should be for the relationship. But if we look at the distinction, often when people are apologizing, it's not that they feel bad and want to acknowledge it to the other person and make sure they're okay. It's usually about them, that they want to be absolved of the guilt of what happened. So, um, you know, even the way we might apologize. Okay, you know, I did that, but okay, I'm sorry, okay? Right, that type of an apology. It has the word sorry in it, but we can hear there's this haste, there's a sense of just get over it or just tell me I'm okay or tell me you're no longer mad at me. Even people will literally sometimes say, well, I said sorry, meaning that the person should now be okay because this word magically transforms everything that happened before it like some kind of magic spell. And it can go a long way, just the acknowledgement and some kind of apology can. So sometimes if it's a a small, small transgression, minor transgression in a relationship that otherwise feels pretty good, yeah, maybe just saying sorry can make it pretty okay and you can move on. But usually it'll take more than that and especially if you're saying it in a way like, okay, I said I'm sorry, that shows that you're trying to make sure you're off the hook more than you're trying to make sure whoever you're dealing with feels okay or feels that their pain is recognized or what you did was recognized to them. And so I work with couples that they can still feel some pain from something that happened years ago because it wasn't 
dealt with in an appropriate way. It wasn't talked about and, and resolved. So first you have to ask yourself when you're apologizing, what is my intention and to be clear with it? And make sure that you're coming from a place of it being about the other person. You feel bad about hurting them. And it's not even about your bad feelings so much as it about their hurt feelings. Because that's another thing people will do. So they might want to absolve themselves from guilt or it could be about how bad they feel. So in a way they want to show that, you know, you don't need to be upset with me. Um, I'm already more hurt by it than you are. I am so upset by what's happened that I'm already suffering. Even sometimes people will hurt someone and the way they communicate, it's almost like they're saying, I'm more hurt about it than you are. And people will literally say that at times, but other times it will be implied that if you knew how, how painful it was for me that I did that to you, um, which yes, it can be very painful when we hurt someone we care about, but if we're focusing on an apology, we want to make it about their feeling, not our own. And what people will also do, and you know, this is a tough one because it's not that I tell people not to cry. Obviously, I'm very big on allowing people and wanting people to express their feelings. But often in that same vein, when we're having this kind of a conversation, someone might start crying about how hurt they are that they hurt the person. And there could be time for this at some point, but we have to recognize that when we go there, we're making about our feelings. So let's kind of imagine a scenario. You've hurt someone. Let's say you said something mean to them, did something mean to them, and they are hurting and you feel bad. And now you go to talk to them about what happened and you start crying. So now they have to actually worry about your, or they don't have to, but they'll likely be looking at your feelings or the conversation is now shifted towards your feelings about what happened, about what you did. And guilt is a very powerful emotion and we can feel very bad, but we have to be mindful that if we're trying to have this conversation where we apologize to someone, we keep it about their feelings, at least at the beginning. There will likely be times, time to get to your feelings as well. But if you're apologizing, your focus should be on them. I am sorry that what I did hurt you. And I am sorry that is my feeling, but I want to see how you're feeling about it. What's happening for you? What did that feel like for you? I could understand that it hurt you. So a genuine apology also will have several elements to it. There will be this sense of wrongdoing. I am sorry I did something wrong. So the sorry is also acknowledgement of the wrongdoing and that if we feel bad about it, but it's very important that we are clear on that. I'm sorry about what I did. There's generally also a sense of trying to make things right, some kind of retribution. What will, what could we do to make things right? And, um, you know, there's a book by uh, Gary Chapman who wrote the five love languages also wrote a book about the five languages of apology and looking at the different elements of an apology. And for some people, one element will be more, some of the elements will be more meaningful than others. So for some people, they need to just make sure they hear the word sorry, that they someone's acknowledged it. For some people, it's the sense of uh, retribution. How are you going to make things right? For other people, it's the sense that you're not going to do this again is so critical to hear that. that and, and what is someone going to do to make sure that doesn't happen? And as, and as is the case with the five love languages, we might have preferences, but everyone likes all of them. And so with these uh, different aspects of an apology. Some might be more meaningful to you, but generally we all like all of them where they can all have some meaning or value to us. And so we can look at all of these aspects. I did something wrong. I feel bad about it. I could understand you feel bad about it. I want to make things right. 
I don't want to do it again. I want to make sure this doesn't happen again. And another crucial element, which goes back to this going away from the sense of, okay, I said, I'm sorry, let's move forward, is giving the person the space that they could feel bad for a while. It, of course, depends on what we did, what happened, and the pattern of things. For example, if it's something that's happened many times before, we know that it might take them some time. So we have to be aware that when you apologize, that's opening up the interaction about dealing with the issue. It doesn't finish it. For many people, they think if they've made a good apology, that should be it. But often if we're very hurt, it takes some time for us to heal. The apology can actually help us heal much more quickly, but it doesn't mean the healing is completed just because a genuine apology has been expressed by the person that has hurt us. And a note there about getting an apology from the person that hurt us. As a therapist, I'm helping people in a lot of different ways, but one of the things that is often the focus or one of the focuses of the work is helping people deal with the ways they've gotten hurt in the past, these emotional wounds and scars that they are carrying forward. And in therapy, obviously, you can do a lot, but I always recognize that what would help the person the most, or at least be the biggest jumpstart in their healing, would be some type of apology and acknowledgement from the person who hurt them. Whoever it was, whether it's a parent, family member, loved one, someone who abused them in some way, someone who did some kind of uh, harmful thing to them when they were a child or when they were older, that person actually can have the biggest function or step in helping them heal. Of course, that sometimes is not possible. The person might be dead. They're, they're literally no longer possible to have po the possibility for that. It also could be that that person won't apologize or acknowledge. So if we keep seeking it out from that person and they keep either denying or telling us, you know, we're the sensitive one or they did nothing wrong or it never happened or a variety of things or getting mad at us or whatever it is, it could actually make us feel worse. So although I know that it can be the fastest way, I also know it's always not possible and sometimes it might be more hurtful to go talk to that person. Um, so for many reasons, we might not be able to get that apology and acknowledgement, but I know that it is that most crucial step and the most uh the fastest way to get to that healing. So if you are someone that's hurt someone, done something wrong to someone, be aware of that, that you've hurt them, you can't change that. But how do you want to play a role in their healing? And you can be the one that helps them heal the most if you acknowledge and apologize in a genuine way. Again, it doesn't mean they're now healed, but it could be a big step towards their healing. So when you apologize, you do want to make sure you leave that space. I understand I've said these things, and also we have to be aware that depending on what we did, some things don't get forgiven. The person might not ever forgive you, but you at least are aware that it might take them some time and give them that space. We have a hard time sitting with negative feelings. So if we know if someone is upset with us and if we see them sad or hurt, it can be hard for us to tolerate that. So we want, okay, come on, get over it, get over it because I can't sit with this. But we have to be willing to sit with those uncomfortable feelings if we want the apology to be genuine that I've hurt you, I have to give you your space to have that experience. And also, usually depending on how big the transgression is, you're going to have to have more than one conversation. So not only is it your apology that's going to be important, but the other person shares more to help you understand what they felt 
you might not even recognize how it hurt them or the ways that it hurt them. Or they might even recognize, you know, I'm very hurt by what you did, but I also realize it's bringing up other things for me from my past. So it's not just about this moment. So it's not necessarily letting you off the hook, but them sharing that they recognize what's going on here isn't just about now. And you also get to learn more about them. Okay, your mom used to make comments like the one I made. And so it stings even more or brings up those feelings. And so now you might even be more aware of how harmful that was, both to recognize what you did and how it hurt them, but to learn for going forward that we, I want to make sure I don't say something like that again. It's not good anyway, but I know you're particularly sensitive, so I want to keep that in my mind when we're communicating. And so this is where we're looking that it's not about focusing on the past to stay in the past. That's not the goal. The goal is focusing on the past to heal the past and to learn from that past to make a better present and future in the relationship. And yes, there are people that will stay in the past and want to stay the victim because that gives them some ammunition in the relationship, some feeling that you always owe me, somewhere they can always go to to make the other person feel bad. So I understand that that does happen. There are people that will use these past transgressions as a weapon. But I would invite you to look at, is there something you can do about it in general? And not to assume that's what the person is doing. It can happen, but it's also not that common that people will do that. So yes, we want to look at the past, not to stay in the past, but to heal the past and to create a better present and future from that healing and from what we learn. Because when we actually reconnect after some kind of rupture in a relationship, it creates a stronger relationship. And you've likely, and I hope you've experienced this, where you've had some kind of argument with someone, even at points it didn't feel good at all, maybe you got even a little bit ugly, hopefully not too ugly, but if you resolve it, you tend to feel much closer with that person after. It strengthens the relationship because of what you've learned from it, but also that you went through something together. And also the fact that you withstood something challenging tells you that there's something stronger there. We've been through something together. We worked through something. We now have a stronger bond that is there. So my invitation to you in thinking of bringing up something that someone did that hurt you, but also recognizing, acknowledging something that you might have done that hurt someone else is not to stay in the blame zone and the victim zone and looking at who's wrong and who's right and who was the one that was wronged, but to focus on how can we heal that to actually create a stronger relationship. And if you want to have a healthy and happy relationship, you need to have one where both individuals feel they have the space to bring up things that have hurt them and bothered them. It's not just pick your battles or never bring up things and try to stay positive and have patience. No, you need to acknowledge what's hurting you and what's what you've done that's hurt the other person to not let that emotional debris build up and to learn and heal and grow through those discussions, those apologies, the forgiveness that comes with it over time to move forward in a stronger relationship. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, how are you, Dr. I'm good, thanks. Thanks for calling. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm calling from Australia. I'm 33 years old right now. Mm -hmm. I'm the last child of my parents. Uh, We are five brothers only. We don't have any sister. I'm the last one. Each of brother is two years older each other. Like uh, after two years, two years, two years. So I'm the last one. Uh, 
I got lots of problems with my partner right now. Um, my partner is the first child of one. Uh, she has only one brother and one sister, mm-hmm. and she has one more step brother, but the step brother lives in overseas. Okay. She is originally from Africa. She adopted by Australian family when she was little, little young. Her real parents passed away a while ago from asthma, hmm. and. Uh, we get into the relationship in 2020 when the COVID starts, mm-hmm. and because in that time in Australia we had a really, really tough restriction about the I don't know COVID. We couldn't go out for at least for six months. That's why everyone's sitting home, and we just like a chatting, calling. Actually, I has uh, break the rules and and go to meet her at least twice a week because she was living far away. That was the start of the connection between me and her. Okay. And we started to get the feel in the beginning. I don't know why, but I'm thinking because everyone since home, everyone was like, uh, I don't know, didn't know what's going on in the future. Like they. In that time, everyone like uh, living as a I don't know, as like can't find that like a best world. But I think like uh, some simple life, they being like uh, not much tricky or tough to get the decision. You know, they have been easy in that time because everyone thinks this is like the end of the world. You know, somebody sure. came out. There is definitely. Knows what's yeah, there was a lot of that. People were, you know, getting together, the uncertainty. People are also, a lot of people were getting back with ex-boyfriends or girlfriends because they just wanted to have someone. So, but, you know, what you're saying so far, it's pointing to that you're not sure that this was the right connection or that the you were looking at it the right way. But let's, you know, it's been about two years that you're in this relationship, but it seems like you're saying you're not sure it was the right match to begin with. But let's talk about what's going on and what's happened is i you know we talked quickly right before we have about 10 minutes so i want to make sure we get oh, yeah, some cool. into something and then we can you know get back to, to some kind of uh, conclusion oh, about yeah. it so go ahead at the moment we got the five months old baby Loredora. Uh-huh. this is happened not from me she actually wanted Okay. Well, well, I, I don't know how to. It definitely had to have come from you, also. So you had to have been part of it. But you're saying she wanted to have a child. You did not. Yeah, because she didn't. Like always, I try to protect, and she said, "Don't do it. Don't worry. I'm gonna protect my own. I know how to protect. You don't worry about that. I don't want a child." And it happened. And she told me like I'm the pregnant. And in that time, I was really in the love. I thinking this is the best. I know I can't find better than her, you know. Mm-hmm. And in that time, I said it's all right. Keep it if you want. If you feel like you can sort it out, you can looking after her. If you take the responsible, keep it. I'm okay because we had the plan like I have a baby. After like a two years or one year, I said it's happened now. Happened now. It doesn't matter now. Next two years, the same. Right? That's okay. why I said just keep it. And since the baby came, my life is turned. Like that sweet lady become as the 
aggressive lady, like a fight with any single thing. Like, I don't know, any single point of the life, we had to fight for it. Doesn't matter, I don't know, about the o'clock on the wall or any any simple things. Like, we can't just for five minutes change it. We had to fight like a two hours. Hmm. That's why I killed my feel. I don't feel anything at all right now. Okay. And she tried to fix it up right now. She said, oh, yeah, you're right. I was so wrong. I've been like that, like apologizing. She's thinking if someone like apologize to you, everything is sorted out. I said, mm-hmm. I'm I not looking for you to apologize. Yeah, and I don't know if you're. I, I don't know if you were listening to the last segment, but I was talking about apologies actually, and one of the things was not to think that just because you say sorry it makes everything okay. Um, there's healing from the past, and also I think you're going to say that you want her to make changes, not just apologize for things that have exactly. happened. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. She's she's thinking if someone apologizes to you. All the problem is sorted out. I say it doesn't work like that. Yeah. And right now, we are not like uh, talking much together. Yeah, we try to like uh, hide the things from each other, like uh, hide the feeling. I show up like uh, my face is very happy, but inside deep feeling, I don't have any feeling at the moment. Mm-hmm. We are not asleep together for now four or five months. We didn't have a sex at least for six, seven months ago. And I don't know what I have to do. Hmm. I'm not actually very happy. I'm very, very upset right now about this relationship, this life. I never ever like uh, wanted to have this life. Naturally, her. <laughs> she doesn't have to. But we are stuck in some point. We don't know. We can't go forward. We cannot backward. Just stuck in the middle. We just like a living, living without any like uh, any goals or any any view on the future well you know it seems like when you're saying can't go forward or backwards is that you're not sure that you can work on things because of how they've gotten but i think we have to to try to see what we can do to make things either better either you either have to go forward or backwards and backwards we maybe are meaning like breaking up but something has to happen this can't continue the way you're describing hiding feelings or just pretending like things are okay or at least just living with each other it's not going to work clearly um what you're saying your feeling has changed for her which can happen when we get so hurt by someone you feel like she changed so much also um but do you have any desire to make things work with her oh actually i forgot to say and uh one one thing for me is a very i don't know it's not good i mean i i'm not attracted for the like a little I can't say like a bad word, but little extra pond ladies, you know. But yeah. she's become little chubby right now. Uh-huh. And bad things for me. I don't have any like a attention for this feeling. I told her at the beginning, this is my feel. I know it's not good. I know I, this is wrong from me, but I can't look at the extra pond ladies as a partner. Please keep. Keep on your body. Keep the eye on your body. Always get fit because I know myself. Mm-hmm. It is about my bullying when I was a child, you know. Because I'm the last child. Everyone bullying as a like. Call my brother. We are very skinny. We are not. Call my father, mom. We are whole skinny. And the kids mm-hmm. in the childhood, they like bullying us as a like. Are you very skinny? That's why we hate. Not just me, I think all my like brothers. We hate the fat people. 
not the fat, like a, some like a little over over overweight level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This become from the childhood. When I can't change it, I told her at the beginning, don't get little big. Just to stay in this size, I'm alright. But at the moment, she doesn't care. I tell her, like I told you at the beginning, two days says, this is the Australia. The, kid, the ladies, the beginning, before they find the girlfriend, they look in each other, they look in themselves, they go to the gym, they try to find the perfect body to find the boyfriend. Since they find, they leave everything because they already they have. They are not looking themselves. Well, yeah, you I'm, don't look yourself, but yeah. letting me. Well, I mean, look, I don't know the the cultural things. There's some of that people might say other places too, but there's a few things to look at. One is obviously she had a child. I'm sure that led to changes in in her body. Um, also, it's not necessarily so easy to just keep weight in a certain place. You know, that's not necessarily something easy. But the other thing is you feel like at least she was trying to just get you in a way. Um, even the way, even the way you described that she changed so much, at least from your perspective, was that she was being nicer. But then once you, you know, the baby was there, and there was a sense that you couldn't leave, that she changed the way she was in a lot of ways. That seems to be your experience. Exactly, she says all the time, "You can't go anywhere. You're the father of the child. For the rest of your life, you're father. You have to fight with us." Well, that's not, you know... I'm not saying... Yeah. I'm not saying she's selfish, like she's saying like that, but I know she's a sweet sometimes. Sometimes she's sweet. I'm not going to say everything bad about her. Yeah, she got a good point as well. But when sometimes I said to her, like, oh, this is not the point we shouldn't change. No, you can't do... You can't go anywhere. You have to stuck with us. You're the father. Blah, 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 blah. I said, nice. This is not the point. I can't leave. This is Australia. It's not my country. This is the people separate very easily. You know, if you're just trying to find the mm-hmm. future, they separate. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, that's... Now, you know, there's... I don't know if her being adopted plays any part in this, too. The, uh, you know, it's qu- I don't want to quickly analyze her in these last two minutes, but there could be a sense of not wanting you to leave. No one wants to be left or to have a divorce, but the sense of not being abandoned, so she's trying to make you feel stuck, that you can't go anywhere. But obviously the way to make uh, a relationship work isn't for the person to feel stuck, is to work on things. Unfortunately, from your side, there's several things that you're saying make you feel like you've given up in some way um, you can get separated but I would hope you try to make things work first especially because there is a, a baby in the picture have you gone to therapy together at uh, the beginning event the beginning when we start like I start uh, like something goes wrong in the relationship I go to the, some psychologist but she didn't like she's really had a big fight with me. Why you go there, we could sort it out, we don't need any third person in our relationship, blah, 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 blah. And I stopped. I said, this is, doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. If I go alone, I need help to come. Mm-hmm. And now, she asked me last last couple of weeks ago, she asked me, oh, I know this is not right in the relationship. We should talk to someone, like, uh, could you again back to the doctor? I said, no, I don't like anymore. Why, why not? I like it, but now I don't like it. Why don't you like it anymore? Because I don't have feelings. That's the problem. Yeah, if I had a feeling like a, in that time, yeah, 100% I go. But okay. now I feel like I'm very disappointed. I'm very like a, I give up badly. 
Well, look, we can't just manufacture feelings. And sometimes if the feeling for someone has changed so much, it can't come back. But, But my recommendation to you would be to see if you, if working through the anger and the hurt you have could change some of that. I know some of it is physical too, but that can be related to other things. It's not just about the physical. I would recommend you give it one more shot to actually go and try. And if not, then you have to end the relationship. You can't just stay because of that. If you're saying you have no feeling, I mean, you can stay, but you have to recognize, is this the life I'm going to want to have where I'm just in a relationship that has no feeling in it? So I would recommend, even though you don't feel so up for it, at least go, it could, you know, even when people go to couples therapy, yes, the goal is to help the relationship, but it also is that it gives a like an x-ray and evaluation of the relationship. So maybe you realize it just can't work. And if that's the case, at least you have more clarity in making a decision going forward. But I think you need to go. There's a lot of obviously big issues here. Things have changed so much. Your feeling is gone. You almost don't want to try. It almost feels like you don't feel like it's worth trying. But you have a child. You have something together. Let's see if something can be made from this. If not, then you leave the relationship with more peace of mind than how things are now. But I would hope you give it one more actual shot. Go to therapy for a few months together. Really try, really open up. See if you can resolve some of those things and build back a relationship. If you can't, then you move forward. I do have to end the show um, today. Maybe we can talk another time. But I do hope you give that one more chance. Sure. Thank you. Sure. Probably I'm going to call you all the time okay. because I've got the lots of things to sure. say. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> everything is a mixed up. Yeah. Well, I look, for, I look forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> we, we'll, we'll have to do it another time then. But thanks for calling. Have a great day. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Cheers. All right. Thank you. Let's go to the end of the show. Thank you to everyone who called and all the listeners. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. Hope you have a wonderful day. 